Father, as we have sung, our confidence and hope is indeed in you. And we pray that you would be our help now as we come to study your written word, that we might know the Lord Jesus better, um, and by the power of your spirit we might honour you this week as our Heavenly Father, for your name's sake. Amen. Well, please, uh, as you sit down, take hold of a Bible and uh, turn back in the church Bibles to page 292. I think we've managed to have got a, an old Gideon Bible here rather than the ones that we normally have, which says at the front, taken out of service, which is sort of something I thought the Gideons never did, take a Bible out of service. So um, I'm on a different, different page number to you, but you should be on page 292, 1 Samuel 20. Sometimes the reality is that life can be very hard. The world an unforgiving place. Human suffering all but unbearable. So it was for Jerry Sitzer when in 1991 he and his family faced catastrophic and unimaginable loss in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. In one terrible moment, Sitzer witnessed the death of his mother, his wife, and one of his daughters. He writes, In the hours that followed the accident, the initial shock gave way to unspeakable agony. I felt dizzy with grief's vertigo, cut off from family and friends, tormented by the loss, nauseous from the pain. He goes on to say that he was caught in a torrent of emotion that swept away the life that he had cherished. And although his own loss was truly terrible, one of his reflections in the years since the accident has been about the folly of trying to quantify and compare losses. He says the very attempt only exacerbates the loss by driving us to two unhealthy extremes. On the one hand, those coming out on the losing end of the comparison are deprived of the validation they need to identify and to experience the loss for the bad thing that it is. Their loss is diminished as not worthy of attention. On the other hand, those coming out on the winning end convince themselves that no one has suffered as much as they have, that no one will understand them, that no one can offer lasting help. They are the ultimate victims. So they indulge themselves with their pain and gain a strange kind of pleasure in their misery. His conclusion is that human suffering and loss is always bad. It is just bad in different ways. And so it will be for many here this morning. Some will have lost a wife to cancer. Others, a husband to adultery. Some will know the pain of dealing with a daughter's disability others perhaps the agony of a son's rebellion. Some will have lost a parent through divorce. 
For others, their loss was the unstoppable ravages of dementia. Sometimes life can be hard. The world an unforgiving place and human suffering all but unbearable. And yet the message of 1 Samuel 20 is that even in a world of confusion and trouble, there is one place where the Christian can find security, comfort and refuge. As we come to study this book again this morning, we need to pause for a moment just to try and work out how we're supposed to understand its message. What are we to learn from our narrator's powerful and engaging account of David's life? Is it, for example, some sort of ancient morality tale where David is the good guy to emulate and Saul is the bad guy whose sins we should avoid? Or is it, as one writer put it, a literary picnic where the author brings the words and the reader brings the meaning? Do we identify with who we like in the story? Or are we to identify with certain characters in certain ways and if so who and why well it's helpful to see that the writer of 1 Samuel presents us with David the king and David the man as the king David is unique and his righteous rule points us to the greater king Jesus Christ As a man, David is representative and his sinful rebellion teaches us more about our own human condition. And in chapter 20, you meet David as a very human figure. The embodiment, if you like, of human weakness in an evil and suffering world. Later, as you read on in Samuel, you you learn of the suffering that David's own sin inflicts on him and others. But here, David is the innocent victim. Here he suffers not because of his own sin, but because of the sin of others. David is a man on the run, pursued by the insecurity and hatred of Saul. There is no refuge in the king's palace. There is no refuge in his own home. There is no refuge in the prophet's house. And so chapter 20, verse 1 David arrives breathless and desperate at the home of the king's son, Jonathan. And the question you need to ask is why? Why does David seek refuge with Jonathan? See, it is not the most obvious place to find refuge, is it? Challenge the rule of an hereditary monarch and then drop in and visit his son. Uh, You cast your eye over to verse 31, you see that Saul clearly thinks that Jonathan, his son, should share his murderous intent. For that's the only way that he can hang on to what is rightfully his. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. So why does David seek refuge with Jonathan? Well, because as Dale Ralph Davis helpfully puts it, and I I want to acknowledge huge debt to his comments on this chapter, as he puts it in his commentary, in confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. In confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. 
And so the first thing to learn from this chapter is this. Know the refuge of covenant love. Verses 1 to 23. Know the refuge of covenant love. And David arrives at Jonathan's clearly bewildered verse 1. What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Now Jonathan, for his part, seems as profoundly naive as David seems deeply troubled. Verse 2. Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. Now perhaps it was Jonathan's undoubted loyalty that blinded him to the seriousness of his father's intent. It was, it seems, difficult for Jonathan to believe that his father was genuine when he previously announced his intent to kill David. Now, he was explicit about it at the beginning of chapter 19. See, to Jonathan, it didn't make the slightest sense. So he pleads with his father in verse 5 of chapter 19, why would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Why? And because Saul's murderous outburst made no sense to Jonathan, he was easily reassured by his father's change of mind and solemn oath, verse 6. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Now, of course, from David's perspective, things look very different. Jonathan was an optimist, but David was a realist. So, chapter 20, the end of verse 3, David says, As surely as the Lord lives, And as you live, there is only a step between me and death. See, Saul may have kept the truth from Jonathan, but he made it more than plain to David. And yet alongside David's desperation, there is a reminder of Jonathan's steadfast love. Verse 4, whatever you want me to do, I will do it for you. And as David makes his request for help in verses 5 to 7, the foundation of his appeal is the help and refuge of covenant love. Verse 8. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. Our covenant means little to us. It's just another Bible word. It's a word that neither excites us, nor inspires us, or particularly reassures us. Well, that was not so for the first readers of this book. Back at the beginning of chapter 18, we read of Jonathan's love for David and the covenant that flowed from it. It was, as verse 8 of chapter 20 puts it, a covenant of the Lord. A love that binds itself to another person through thick and thin the promise of unfailing loyalty to which God himself is the witness and the final guarantor. You see, that's why David fled to Jonathan. Because in confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. And of course, the covenant between Jonathan and David is in the Bible a picture of the covenant between God and his people. You see, it is impossible in the Bible to speak of covenant love and not 
nothing of the covenant God. So Jonathan's appeal to David in verse 14 is rooted ultimately in the unfailing kindness, the word that's often associated with covenant in the Bible. Jonathan's appeal is rooted ultimately in the unfailing kindness, the steadfast love, the covenant fidelity of God himself. Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live. See, covenant was at the very heart of Israel's relationship with God. So Moses puts it like this to the people of God as they stand on the edge of the promised land at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who, keep, who love him and keep his commands. And such covenant love is both surprising and undeserved. So the crown prince and heir apparent looks for mercy from the true king. Verse 14. Show me unfailing kindness, like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And amazingly, the true king agrees. That was customary in ancient Near Eastern culture to wipe out any opposition. And yet if you read on in the books of Samuel, you come to chapter 9 of 2 Samuel and you see that David honours the promise to show mercy to the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. You see, in the same way, the covenant love of God for his people is both surprising and undeserved. So again, God says through Moses in Deuteronomy, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he, brought you out of, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. And so we are to know the refuge of covenant love in the midst of the trial and trouble of this world. For in love, God has bound himself to his people. You know, his is an unwavering commitment. And ours is an unshakable security. God's covenant was the hope of his people in the past, just as his covenant is the hope of his people in the present. It's why we regularly gather around the Lord's table and we remember. We remember that Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying that this cup is the new covenant which is poured out for you. You see, our God's commitment is unwavering. So our security is unshakable and we are to know the refuge of covenant love. It has, I think, been one of the most sanitary and curiously life-affirming aspects of pastoral ministry to walk some of the way with those who have borne or who are bearing almost unimaginable difficulty in life. You know, for all our 
apparent togetherness on Sundays, many of our lives are terribly fragile amidst the painful trials of this troubled and troubling world. Now, of course, there is lots, much that is good in this life. The sun shines on a beautiful spring morning. We enjoy friendship, good food, beautiful scenery. There is much in this life that is good. But there are many things in our lives that are truly difficult. So in our own church family, there are parents grieving deeply over their prodigal children. And there are children sick with anxiety for their elderly and ailing parents. One family in the church is at the moment facing a gruelling legal case. Whilst another family are trying to cope with a marriage under unbearable pressure. There are infertile couples who shed tears for a child that can never be, whilst others still grieve for the child that they have outlived and buried. As one writer put it, the crust of the earth is soaked with the tears of the suffering. But you know, in all of this, we are to know the refuge of covenant love. It's why we sang earlier on in the service before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. You see, his is an unwavering commitment and ours is an unshakable security and we are to know the refuge of covenant love. Well, secondly, we are to understand the cost of covenant love, verses 24 to 34. We are to understand the cost of covenant love. If you're a bargain hunter, you'll know that there's something irresistible about one of those pound shops. Now, what could be more enticing than an entire store where nothing costs more than a pound? Uh, We have, or we rather had, a bargain one-pound ice cream scoop. Uh, We wanted an Arnold Schwarzenegger ice cream scoop, you know, a sort of heavyweight server that could handle the coldest and hardest ice cream contender. Uh, Sadly, what we got was the scoop equivalent of a ten-stone weakling, anything harder than a chilled trifle, and it fell apart. Now, we persevered with it for months in what I can only describe as bargain denial. But in the end, reality intruded, and we finally conceded the point. Perhaps the real thing was a little more costly. Well, as our narrator changes scene in verse 24, Jonathan was to discover just how costly covenant love was. David hides in the field, and Saul sits down to eat. The king is celebrating the New Moon Festival, and our writer records the place settings, verse 25. Saul sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. It was as David and Jonathan anticipated. 
in spite of everything that had happened, Saul clearly expected David to be present, verse 26. But then Saul seems increasingly unhinged and irrational. Uh, Doubtless it seemed reasonable to Saul that David, the marked man, should join him for hors d'oeuvres with a little homicide to follow, but it appeared to be complete insanity to everybody else. Verse 26, day one, David is missing. Ah, His absence noted but explicable. Verse 27, day two, David's place is still empty and the king's hackles are beginning to rise. Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Well, Jonathan spins David's yarn and Saul explodes. Angry and resentful words flowing from a hard and bitter heart, verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. As before, Jonathan pleads David's innocence, but his father has long passed the point of rational persuasion, and so violence follows vitriol in verse 33. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Now for Jonathan, his father's aggression was a defining moment. Loyal to the point of naive, when the spear flies across the room, reality finally intrudes, verse 33. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. You do think that there is more than a hint of dark humour in our narrator's reflection. Jonathan finally knew the truth, but only when he was looking down the shaft of his father's spear. And yet I wonder, was Jonathan's reluctance to believe the worst about his father a reflection of the battle that was going on in his soul? You see, here was a man with a foot in two kingdoms, Saul's kingdom and David's. Standing with David... Jonathan had lost almost everything, hadn't he? He'd lost his position, his home, his family, and now almost his life. See, does he not help us to understand the cost of covenant love? Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You see, it is inevitable. It is unavoidable that if we follow Jesus Christ, it will be in some sense a costly experience. You know, covenant love can still cost you your position, your home, your family, and even your life. So this past week, the press has highlighted the appalling case of Abdul Rahman, the Afghan Christian under threat of the death penalty because he converted from Islam to Christianity. And sadly, his case represents thousands upon thousands throughout the world today. 
but will never receive anything like that media attention. According to a fairly recent article in The Spectator, more than 300 million Christians throughout the world are either threatened with violence or legally discriminated against because of their faith. So is it really that surprising if we face opposition from family or work colleagues because we are seeking Christ's kingdom and his righteousness? Is it really so surprising? Know the refuge of covenant love. Understand the cost of covenant love. And thirdly and finally, trust the peace of covenant love. Verses 35 to 42, trust the peace of covenant love. In the final scene of chapter 20, our narrator takes us back out to the field where David lies in wait for news. Jonathan has left the fury of his father to bid farewell to his friend. And lest his sudden departure should arouse suspicion, Jonathan is accompanied by a small boy, verse 35. And so the difficult plan that David and Jonathan had agreed upon finally reaches its climax. So verse 36, Jonathan said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And then comes the prearranged signal, verse 37. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. See, it is the signal for David to leave. For any hope of peaceful reconciliation with Saul is dispelled forever. David is the marked man, and if he doesn't run, Saul will kill him. There is, in Jonathan's hidden words to David, an almost unbearably painful farewell, made all the more difficult because of its terrible finality. Perhaps that's why after Jonathan's alibi leaves, there is the brief but emotionally charged farewell of verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. And yet in the midst of such devastation and turmoil, Jonathan's farewell is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Verse 42, go in peace. Was ever a situation less peaceful than this? Given the circumstances, Jonathan's words are surprising to say the least. How can there be peace when the world is full of so much sadness and trouble? Well, because whatever trouble there is in the world, there is peace between covenant partners, a peace that lasts forever. Go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying... The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. See, again, it is impossible to read this chapter as an Old Testament believer and not think of God's covenant love. Impossible. The covenant peace between David and Jonathan is a reminder of the covenant peace between God and his people. And so Jesus in the New Testament, reassures his troubled disciples with these words, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give with you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. See, it's why Paul says what he says at the end of Romans 8. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know the refuge of covenant love. Understand the cost of covenant love. Trust the peace of covenant love. This week, whatever you may be facing, sometimes life can be hard. The world an unforgiving place, human suffering all but unbearable. But in Christ there is a refuge for your soul. For nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, you know that we are so often anxious about everything and prayerful about very few things at the least. Please, would you help us to trust in your covenant love where our eternal security is that we might know the peace of the gospel that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus through all the turmoil and trouble of this world. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.